is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, troubling new reporting by the Lens shows that at least 20% of students at New Orleans public schools are considered chronically absent this school year, according to district officials. A New Orleans City Council member is asking the state to investigate and reverse a set of controversial tax cuts that Orleans Parish Assessor Errol Williams granted to nearly every commercial property in the parish. And former New Orleans City Councilman and longtime defense attorney Jason Williams was inaugurated Monday as Orleans Parish District Attorney, promising to bring sweeping changes to the criminal justice system under his leadership. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusen is here. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle is here. Hi, Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado covering government and cultural economy. Hi, Charles. Hi, how are you doing today, Carolyn? Good, thank you. So, Marta... Virtual learning has exacerbated absenteeism at New Orleans public schools. You obtained a report that showed that thousands of New Orleans students are now considered chronically absent from school. What does chronic absenteeism mean? Yeah, so chronic absenteeism uh, basically is just a a red flag term that the district uses to track students. um, And you are labeled as chronically absent if you've missed 10 days or more of school. Okay, what are the consequences of this? The immediate consequences this year, I don't think, are clear. Obviously, learning loss, right? You're missing days in school and critical um, time with your teachers. On the other end of it, in certain districts, if you miss up to 10 days of school or, you know, a different threshold of numbers, uh, there could be consequences with your classes, whether or not you're allowed to pass that class or not. Um, I know in high schools, you're supposed to get an F if you have hit that 10-day threshold because then you're not considered to have gotten the appropriate amount of time for the class. Okay, how many students are we talking about here? We've now hit the 9,000 mark, and that's out of uh, 44,000 students in the district, so that's about 20% of enrollment. Um, and we, we did look at data that suggested it could potentially be higher than that. Percentage-wise, how does this compare to years past? Is this, a, is this different? So we don't, we don't actually know how it compares to recent years because the district has never collected data um, on attendance from its decentralized charter schools. Um, however, they have noted, um, that overall attendance is down. Normally we're seeing about 90, uh, to 92% daily attendance averages. And right now we're seeing 83%. Okay. And what's the conventional wisdom, I guess, is suggesting that this is all wrapped up in, in the, uh, COVID-19 and, and what's happened with the pandemic? Yeah, I think it's just, um, I mean, it's generally, it's harder to make contact with anyone in a normal year. You're obviously going to have students who are having trouble getting or staying in school, whether that's, uh, you know, a choice that's being made or it's, you know, complications at home or transportation problems or, you know, any of a variety, you know, housing stability, any of a a variety of issues. Um, And I think this year, all of those things are also being exacerbated in addition to having kids learning from home. So it, it could be as simple as a a child not logging on because, you know, a parent's not home or, you know, it could be much more complicated than that. I guess assuming that because the parent is sort of saying time to get to school, you know, even though it's virtual school. Right. And when you're, you know, I've had a couple of teachers say things like that, or they have a kid who will log on and 
one teacher had a kid that would log on and just hop back in bed, close their window with their camera. <laughs> you know, so teachers have little funny stories like that. Um, but we did talk to a social worker from Arise Academy who's, um, you know, going to great lengths to try to reach out to these students who aren't showing up. You also, t- she, I think, in your story, you talk about um, that she's seen on Zoom or, or it's somehow become clear to her through the virtual learning experience that the child who's in school is also doing duty as a caregiver for a younger sibling. So trying to babysit, in other words, at the same time as attending school. Right, and so I think that's a very a very real um, thing for many students, whether or not you know it's a high schooler watching their younger sibling or it's a you know middle schooler taking care of a, a much younger sibling. Um, you know, it's everyone's pulling double duty. We know parents are doing the same thing too. What are the remedies for this? What does the school do to try to boost uh, attendance? So the schools and the district, um, they have a variety of uh, steps that they follow. Uh, the first ones, obviously, are just, uh, you know, reaching out on the phone or by email. Um, then next, that would step up to a home visit, potentially, you know, just trying to get rid of some of those barricades for students, whether that's connectivity, whether it's, hey, what's a creative solution we can figure out, like, where's a place in your house you can attend class, you know, now that we're back in virtual school. Sometimes kids just don't have a quiet place in their home to to log on for school. Um, so I think working creatively with a social worker to try to solve those issues. And then in some cases, if a student can't be located, um, that will be kicked to the uh, to a truancy officer. What does a truancy officer do? A, a truancy officer, I think, uh, brings a little bit more of a level of seriousness to it. And I think, you know, the social worker we talked to said that that can be particularly helpful um, just in, you know, showing that, you know, hey, this is an issue we need kids to be in school. This is uh, really important, even though it isn't amid a pandemic and things are very complicated right now. But our social worker that we talked to said that um, truancy officers have been very helpful. Are the true? I, I think they kind of, they try to come in as a you know with a social worker angle to what they're doing, but it is another agency that's involved. Okay, are they? Yeah, I was going to ask if they're district employees or or state education employees. Who are they? The truancy officers. There's a variety of um, um, employees from the districts, like uh, Office of Student Support, and then it it could get as serious as having a um, truancy officer from the police department being involved. I know that they can help with welfare checks um, sometimes. You also outline in your piece that some schools are are seeing a. a large percentage of absenteeism, chronic absenteeism, while others not so much, I guess, unsurprisingly. Is there any downside to funding? Um, I know when they do the um, the count, the official count day was back in October, I think. Um, could chronic absenteeism play a role in future funding for these schools at all? Yeah, I think it could. And I think that's a, that's a big worry for the district. I mean, I, I think You know, the district obviously is coming at this from two angles. One, you know, first and foremost, we just want kids to be in school. We want them to be learning. Um, But second, those there could be financial impacts, especially um, if we were having, you know, that that count day was during virtual learning for some schools. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, that that count day came after we had brought back um, kindergarten through fifth grade students, but not older students yet. Okay. And the next count day is next month. Is that right? Right, February 1st. Aha, so there is a second one. 
that's actually a product of uh, post-Hurricane Katrina because so many students weren't back in October that year that they decided to then have two count dates where they could, you know, obviously do a real better count in February. And then they've um, continued to maintain that just to shift funding throughout the year if people are losing students or students are transferring. Okay. You uncovered that with, with this reporting. So thank you for your hard work on that. Yeah, thank you. Michael's reporting on a city council meeting today. So Charles is pitching in for him. And he had a story this week on Councilwoman Helena Moreno writing a letter to the state asking them to reverse, to investigate and reverse property tax cuts for businesses the city assessor granted this past fall in response to the pandemic, giving them a, some relief. Um, Charles, explain these tax cuts. Yeah, so um, last year when uh, the assessor was doing his uh, statewide assessment, um, one, one of the things uh, that, that the assessor did was grant basically across the board cuts to, uh, to co- commercial properties, or at least many categories of commercial properties. Um, and this was done under the authority of, uh, of a state law that allows such cuts if a business as the result of a declared emergency is either destroyed or severely damaged or also just non-operational. In this case, the disaster was not what we would traditionally think of as a disaster like that that would make make a business non-operational. It was, of course, the uh, the COVID-19 emergency. And the res- result of this uh, is that, um, you know, according to reporting in the, t- in the Times-Picayune, from October, that the the taxes were cut in in, in such a way that has has an overall impact of about $42 million to the various tax recipient bodies in Orleans Parish, which include not only the city, but the public schools, the sewerage and water board, the jail, and several other entities. That's a big chunk. So what did the letter say? The letter was to the Louisiana Tax Commission, and Helena Moreno wrote uh, and uh, sent this letter uh, in mid-December. Apparently, it was not received by the Tax Commission until last week, January 7th. And it asked the Louisiana Tax Commission, which, um, which has the power to... to it, it basically, it, it, it is the body that certifies the parish tax rolls before your tax bill gets sent out. And... And uh, she asked them to to examine and reverse these across the board cuts. And basically, her argument, uh, you know, the, at least one substantive part of her argument was that she does acknowledge that there's this law that allows for for disaster based tax cuts, but the law, you know, the law as written calls for a different process. It calls for um, the property owners themselves to sort of make the appeal to the tax assessor rather than the tax assessor preemptively applying a blanket cut, you know, based on business category, um, which is what he did in this case. So, as I said, though they received the letter the day after they approved the Orleans Parish tax rolls, there is a provision in the law that allows them to change or correct property assessments at any time uh, before before the taxes are actually paid. Michael, as part of his reporting, talked to talked to the tax commission and was basically told that you know for various reasons, including some lim- legal limitations and resource rim- limitations, we're talking about a large number 
of reviews of businesses, of business property taxes here, that they were not terribly inclined to do this reversal. So it does not appear at the moment that it's going to happen that the tax commission is going to be meeting on uh, tomorrow. Today's Thursday. This will air on Friday. So they'll be meeting on Friday, but it does not appear that this reversal is, is going to be something that happens. One of the other reasons that Michael was told that they weren't inclined to do this is that, is that basically the, the, uh, the city council had an opportunity um, in October to challenge these assessments and did not during what's called a board of review meeting. Now, that is true. They didn't challenge it, but at the time... They really weren't aware of it. This was something that was not made public until more than a week after the Board of Review meeting happened. All right, and so the the assessor is standing by his his assessment. What is he saying? Michael had an interview with him, and he and we didn't get a lot of new information about why he's standing by the assessment. But you know, I I, I believe he stands by that that um, you know his office did a lot of review and study into how this law is the disaster law can be applied. He felt that it was done appropriately in this case, and uh, he's standing by it, and he more or less told Michael that, you know, Michael can write whatever he wants about it, but, uh, but you know, he's, he doesn't have to explain himself to him. Right. Moreno wrote this letter in mid-December, and then they, they say they got it January 7th, the day after they approved the rules. Is there any explanation for that? If there is an explanation, I have no idea what it is. It's uh, it's not something that we were able to get answered um, during the course of reporting this story. But you know, the timing is interesting that it didn't happen until after that it didn't it didn't show up on their desks until they had already approved the rolls for the parish. You mentioned that one of the the mechanism by which a person can or an entity can appeal an assessor's assessment of your property is you the you as the business owner or the building owner would be the one to do that this situation is the reverse though so that um you wouldn't expect that they would write a letter to appeal so that they would pay more taxes i would think that the only time they would want to do that is when they were setting up the um business for sale and they would want a higher valuation so this yeah oh sure go ahead well no i'm just wondering you know if that mechanism is in place only for those kinds of situations uh you know is there anything else that the city can do to recoup some of these costs to recoup some of this money oh well so at this point uh, yeah, I mean, at, at at this point, you know, if you're getting if you're getting a tax cut, you're 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 not going to challenge it, and and you know the time the time to have appealed it appealed it is passed now anyway. The only thing that's left the only the only thing that's left now is action by the Louisiana Tax Commission if they choose to take such action. Okay. But the real the the the, the, mechan, the mechanism for having challenged this earlier could have been a business owner. Or you know, a property owner who who got who 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 got an assessment, or it could have been uh, a member of the city council. The law also also empowers uh, tax recipient bodies to challenge these. So okay. that that would have been the more likely challenge. But uh, you know, and you know, as I mentioned before, that didn't happen when it would normally happen, which was during the board of appeal or board of review process, which was back in October. And no one else from city council has gone on record supporting. Moreno's request? Not that I'm aware. Okay. 
Okay. Well, thanks, Charles, for Michael's reporting. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are Marta Jusen, Nick Krastel, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Michael Isaac Stein, and I cover New Orleans' cultural economy and local government here at The Lens. Our aim is to report stories that others aren't or can't. Increasingly, traditional newsrooms are facing budget cuts and have been curtailing long-term investigative reporting because it tends to be the most expensive kind of work. We're here to fill that gap. Please consider helping us do this important work by making a tax-deductible donation now at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. Nick, we have a new DA in Orleans Parish. Jason Williams was inaugurated as the new district attorney. He was elected on a um, sweeping reform platform. You followed the election. What were your impressions of the inauguration? You know, I think it was sort of about what I expected. Um, You know, during his speech, he he talked a lot about uh, the disparities in the criminal justice system, uh, kind of its racist history, talked a lot about how we criminalize things that should be addressed through, you know, other social intervention services, uh, things like mental health care, um, addiction treatment. So, so that was all things that he had discussed, you know, on the campaign trail. Um, and, and I, you know, no, no one was, was too surprised to hear. One thing he didn't do during his, his speech that, you know, we saw, um, in LA County, a, a new progressive prosecutor was, was elected, uh, George Gascon, and he used he used his inauguration to really uh, to announce the implementation of, of a bunch of new specific policies that his office was going to implement going forward. Williams did not do that, so you know some some of the things that Gascon did was he eliminated cash bail for certain lower level offenses um, and sentencing enhancements. Um, which is not to say that Williams won't uh, implement these policy changes, but but it was not something that, that he uh, announced during his inauguration. Okay. And he, he ran on it, as you said, ran on a progressive platform. What does that mean in general and for him specifically, do you think? So progressive prosecutors, I think, uh, in, in general, are focused on reforming the criminal justice system in a way that focuses less on incarceration and actually, and it is, you know, consciously attempting to, to roll back policies that have incarcerated large numbers of people. Uh, so as, yeah, as I mentioned, things like bail reform, um, things like reducing punitive sentencing laws, um, focusing on drug treatment, uh, mental health treatment. Um, so really, really kind of a, a shift from, from what we've seen uh, for several decades um, of kind of tough on crime policies and prosecutors who who really get elected touting their their ability to lock criminals up, uh, these these prosecutors are much more vocal about uh, uh, ways we can reform the system. And Jason Williams has really consciously modeled himself after kind of this national movement um, and has you know talked a lot about how he's going to borrow policies from from progressive prosecutors around the country, including, you know, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, who's kind of 
one of the one of the first and, and bigger names um, to get elected on those on those platforms. One of the big ones in Louisiana is, and particularly Orleans Parish, is the habitual offender law. You know, which is which is you know similar to what has been referred to in the past and in other states as this three strikes law. Um, which is, you know, if you, uh, if you have been convicted of a certain number of previous felonies, if you come up for another felony, your sentence can be ha- enhanced in some cases by decades. You know, historically, um, al- although this tapered off in more recent years, New Orleans has been one of the biggest users of the habitual offender law. And uh, just to give everybody who's not familiar a sense of, of how it works, it's not something that kicks in automatically. A prosecutor uh, has the discretion to charge someone uh, as, an, as an habitual offender or not. So where, where is Jason Williams on that? So he said he will never use the habitual offender law. And yeah, that, uh, you know, a lot of people I talked to said that that was the most important promise that he, he had made during the campaign. You know, both because because people will avoid getting these enhanced sentences uh, for, you know, sometimes nonviolent crimes. They can face decades in prison. Um, but also because if it's, if it's an option that's on the table, then defense attorneys and defendants have to take into consideration the fact that, that a prosecutor might file that and thus can be pressured into taking plea deals that they might not otherwise have. Um, if they were only facing, you know, the the standard sentence for for that specific crime, um, so he's prom- he's promised both not not to ever use it and never to threaten to use it. So yeah, I think I think that will uh, be a, a huge change, and and it's one of the things I'm trying to figure out right now is is whether the or whether uh, defendants are all, who may have been facing or possibly being threatened by the habitual offender bill, whether or not that that is. Um, impacting their cases now that Williams is, is in office. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because I'm not getting into, you know, the, the merits of, of, of doing this or not, but from a practical standpoint, he's already, his office is already dealing with a major backlog from the COVID-19 court, court closures, and taking the habitual offender law off the table seems likely to to send a lot more cases to trial. Do you know if he's you know thought about the the sort of practicalities of promises like this? No, I'm not sure. Actually, that's that's an interesting point. I mean, I do think that what I think we'll see in you know coming up is that a, a way he's going to try and deal with a lot of these. These, this backlog is to, you know, dismiss lower level cases, um, possibly outright. Um, he hasn't announced that, but he's kind of implied it that some of these cases shouldn't be prosecuted. At- that's true. I mean, that's a, that's a good point. If you if you if you apply both things, that's also a way of of, of clearing a lot of a lot of these backlogs. I mean, if you're not prosecuting low level drug nonviolent drug offenses or offering very generous plea deals right off the bat for those types of offenses, then yeah, that you're going to, you're going to take a lot of cases off that way as well, even if you are increasing the number of trials for violent crimes. Right. Which has sort of been his, his, uh, pitch to, to people all along, which, which is that, that by not prosecuting lower level offenses, we're going to keep the city safer because we'll have more resources to deal with these these serious violent cases. And that's something that he said again on Monday at his inauguration. Um, you know, he was very clear that that violent people were going to be convicted or be um, charged and, and prosecuted 
but lower level things would be treated differently than, than they have been previously. So he has this backlog that he's dealing with. He has a diminished budget because of the tax situation, because of COVID. What other challenges, in addition to those, give us, give us some more um, insight into what challenges he's looking at? Well, personally, he's under federal indictment um, for, for tax fraud charges. And uh, we learned last week that his, his uh, attempt to get those charges dismissed due to selective and vindictive prosecution has been denied so the judge denied those and that was always sort of a long shot um it's a it's a really difficult legal claim to make so that is likely to uh, going to go to trial initially his trial was actually scheduled for the day of his inauguration but it has gotten pushed back due to covid so i think it, it won't be until at least march that that he'll have a trial for that but you know that's going to be certainly a distraction um if nothing else so yeah and and that's all you know as you said the 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 budget is cut by nearly 25 percent um which is just a a huge budget cut and then all these cases and those, those things are all on top of kind of the the standard uh challenges that that you have uh, transitioning into a new office, he is having everyone in the office apply for for their job uh, again. So yeah, you can imagine it's, it's just a, a massive amount of work in addition to kind of to the to the structural challenges that, that he's facing right now. And, and I would add that part of his agenda has been creating sort of large projects for himself as well. We have the. Uh, we have his pledge to review all non-unanimous, uh, mm. all non-unanimous guilty verdicts. Right. Um, we uh, we have his pledge to uh, to create a, a list of, of uh, problematic police officers from whom he won't be taking cases. So between between the challenges uh, that that are that are inherent to taking a new office, challenges the budget and the projects that that he has announced he's going to take on himself. It's quite quite a lot going on there. yeah and in addition to the inauspicious trial date and inauguration date being scheduled initially for the same time uh there was also something that happened with a musical act that performed at the ceremony what what happened there yeah so glenn david andrews who's a well-known uh, trombonist in new orleans performed at, at williams inauguration and Andrews happens to have several open cases at criminal district court. So, you know, on Monday, those cases were now being prosecuted by, by Williams. I, I pointed this out in my article and a number of other uh, news outlets did as well. Um, and Williams has, has also claimed to, he, he said at some point that he represented Andrews in the past, but I think, in fact, it was a, an attorney affiliated with, with Williams law firm has represented, um, Andrews. I mean, I think, I think the big thing that this brings up is just that Williams is going to face a, having been a defense attorney for several decades in the city is going to face these challenges of potential conflicts of interest. And it's unclear right now how exactly, uh, he's going to navigate those as DA. Um, Williams has said that he was unaware of, of Andrew's open cases um, when he asked him to perform um, and that he's known him for for many years and has, has kind of supported him as it, through his, his struggles with addiction. And he said that, I, I believe he said something like he would proceed uh, with Andrew's cases appropriately. 
appropriately, um, but what exactly that means, I, we don't know. Ooh, it's complicated. Indeed. Well, thank you for that and all the insight. Thanks, everybody, for all your hard work this week. Thanks, Karen. Thank you. Okay, have a good week. Bye. 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 This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Marta Jusen, Nick Crastel, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>